Chapter Six, Part Five, of the Curious Lore of Precious Stones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kunz. Chapter Six, Part Five on crystal balls and crystal gazing in japan the smaller rock crystals were believed to be the congealed breath of the white dragon while the larger and more brilliant ones were said to be the saliva of the violet dragon as the dragon was emblematic of the highest powers of creation this indicates the esteem in which the substance was held by the japanese who probably derived their appreciation of it from the Chinese. The name Suisho, used both in China and Japan to designate rock crystal, reflects the idea current in ancient times and repeated even by 17th century writers that rock crystal was ice which had been so long congealed that it could not be liquefied. For the Japanese, rock crystal is the perfect jewel, Tama, it is at once a symbol of purity and of the infinity of space, and also of patience and perseverance. This latter significance probably originating from an observation of the patience and skill shown by the accurate and painstaking Japanese cutters and polishers of rock crystal. A crystal ball, one of the largest perfect spheres ever produced, has been made from rock crystal of Madagascar. It is a very perfect sphere and of faultless material. The diameter is six and one-eighth inches, and the ball was held at about $20,000. Many fine crystal balls are made in Japan, the materials being found in large clear masses in the mountains on the islands of Nippon and Fusiyama, and also in the granite rocks of central Japan. It is stated, however, that much of the Japanese material really comes from China. The Japanese methods of working rock crystals are extremely simple and depend more upon the skill and patience of the workers than upon the tools at their command. Our illustration, taken from a sketch made by an oriental traveler, shows the process of manufacturing crystal balls. The rough mass of crystal is gradually rounded by careful chipping with a small steel hammer. With the aid of this tool alone, a perfect sphere is formed. The Japanese workmen thoroughly understand the fracture of the mineral and know just when to apply chipping and when hammering. The crystal, having been reduced to a spherical form, is handed to a grinder whose tools consist of cylindrical pieces of cast iron about a foot in length and full of perforations. These cylinders are of different curvatures according to the size of the crystal to be ground. Powdered emery and garnet are used for the first polishing. Plenty of water is supplied during the process, and the balls are kept constantly turning in order to secure a true spherical surface. Sometimes they are fixed on the end of a hollow tube and kept dexterously turning in the hand until smooth. The final polishing is effected with crocus or rouge, finely divided hematite, 
giving a splendid lustrous surface. As hand labor is exclusively used, the manufacturer of crystal objects according to the Japanese methods is extremely laborious and slow. In Germany and France, and in the United States, the fabrication of rock crystal is accomplished almost entirely by machinery. The crystal to be shaped into a ball is placed against a semicircular groove worn in huge grindstones. This is illustrated in the case of the method practiced in Oberstein, Germany. The workman has his feet firmly braced against a support, and resting upon his chest, presses the crystal against the revolving grindstone. It is unnecessary to add that the practice is extremely unwholesome and develops early consumption among the workers. A constant stream of water is kept flowing over the stone so that the crystal shall always be moist, as the friction would otherwise hurt it and the subsequent addition of water would be liable to cause a fracture. The final polishing is done on a wooden wheel with Tripoli, or by means of a leather buffer with Tripoli or rouge. There are three fine crystal balls in the collection of the American Museum of Natural History. One, apparently perfect, measures five and a half inches in diameter, and was cut from a crystal found in Macalum, calaveras county california the second is six and a half inches in diameter and is from the same locality but not entirely perfect these were shown in the department of the tiffany collection prepared by the author and were exhibited at the paris exposition of nineteen hundred as part of the j pierpoint morgan gift to the american museum of natural history Another fine crystal ball is now to be seen in the American Museum of Natural History, New York. This was donated to the institution. It measures four and eleven sixteenth inches in diameter, is of wonderful purity, and the cutting has been executed with such a high degree of precision that an ideally perfect sphere has been produced. Crystal balls have been found occasionally in tombs or in funerary urns, and their presence in sepulchres may perhaps be considered to have been due to a belief that they possessed certain magic properties. In the tomb of Childeric, circa 436 to 481 A.D., the father of Clovis, a rock crystal sphere, was found which was for a time preserved in the Bibliothèque Royale, Paris, and later in the Louvre Museum. It measures one and one-half inches in diameter. The chance discovery of a number of crystal balls is related to Mount Fosson. Toward the end of the 16th century, the canons of San Giovanni in Laterano, Rome, wished to have some repairs made to a house they owned just outside of the city walls, and sent thither some workmen with the order to break up or remove two large superimposed stones which were much in the way. The workmen proceeded to break the upper stone, but were much astonished to find embedded within it an alabaster funerary urn with its cover. This had been hidden between the two stones, a space for its reception having been hollowed out in the upper and lower stones, so that it fitted within them. 
Opening the urn, there were found inside, mingled with the ashes, twenty crystal balls, a gold ring with a stone setting, a needle, an ivory comb, and some bits of gold wire. The presence of the needle was taken to indicate conclusively that the ashes were those of a woman. The discovery of the tomb of Childeric was made May 27, 1653, by a deaf-mute mason named Adrian Quinquin, while he was excavating for the restoration of one of the dependencies of the church of Saint-Brice de Tournay. One of the most interesting objects found in the tomb was the golden signet of Childeric, bearing his head and the legend Childerici Regis. The earliest description is given in a work by Chiflet, entitled Anastasis Childerici, Resurrection of Childeric, published by Plantin of Antwerp in 1655. The various ornaments were sent by the Spanish Governor-General of the Netherlands to the Austrian Treasury in Vienna, and were not long afterward, in 1664, graciously donated by Emperor Leopold I to King Louis Fourteenth at the instance of Johann Philipp of Schonborn, Archbishop of Mainz, who was under great obligation to the French sovereign. In Paris, the various ornaments were preserved in the Bibliothèque Royale until the night of November 5th to 6th, 1831, when many of them, with other valuables, were stolen by an ex-convict. Closely pursued by the police, the thief threw his booty into the Seine. Much of the plunder was subsequently recovered, but the signet of Childeric was lost forever. The crystal ball had not seemed of sufficient value to tempt the thief, and was left undisturbed. It was later, in 1852, deposited in the Louvre Museum. In a personal communication to Abbe Cochet, made in 1858, by Mr. Thomas Wright, the latter stated that he had seen at Downing and Flincher, with Lord Fielding, five crystal balls bearing labels declaring that they came from the sepulchres of the kings of france violated at the time of the french revolution they had been purchased about eighteen ten at the sale of the duchess of portland's effects among the crystal balls found in french sepulchres may be noted one discovered by rigolot in eighteen fifty three at arras and preserved in the museum of that city. This still has the original gold mounting, serving to attach it to the necklace from which it had been worn suspended. Another, found at or near Levin, was in the possession of Monsieur Dengsois, a notary of henin Letard, Department Pas-de-Calais. In the Bibliothèque at Dieppe, there is a crystal ball thirty two millimeters in diameter found at Douvran, department seine inferieure in eighteen thirty eight in a merovingian tomb this is pierced through the department of moselle supplied three discoveries of this kind crystal balls having been found in a tomb at saint pru la montagne sablon and montville nebrier the latter measuring thirty-six millimeters in diameter 
The Saxon tombs of England have also furnished a contingent of crystal balls, for example at Chatham, at Chessel Down on the Isle of Wight, where four were discovered, at Breachdown, Barham, near Canterbury, at Fairford, Gloucestershire, and also in Kent. We should also note a crystal ball found in a funerary urn at Hinsbury Hill, Northamptonshire. This as well as the one found at Fairford was faceted. From St. Nicholas, Worcestershire is reported a crystal ball one and a half inches in diameter. In his Hydrotaphia, or Urn Burial, published in 1658, Sir Thomas Brown, 1605-1682, author of the Religio Medici, relates that there was at that time in the possession of Cardinal Farnese an urn in which, besides a number of antique engraved gems, an ape of agate, and an elephant of amber, there had been found a crystal ball and six nuts of crystal. One of the largest and most perfect crystal balls is in the Dresden Grungewölbe green vaults. This weighs fifteen German pounds and measures six and two-third inches in diameter. It was undoubtedly used for purposes of augury. $10,000 was the price paid for it in 1780. A crystal ball known as the Coramore Crystal, because it is kept at the seat of that name belonging to the Marquis of Waterford, has long enjoyed and still enjoys the repute of possessing magical powers. It is of rock crystal, and the legend runs that one of the Lepers bought it from the Holy Land, where it had been given him by the great crusader Godfrey de Bouillon, 1058-1100. The ball is a trifle larger than an orange, and a silver ring encircles it at the middle. The chief and much prized virtue of this crystal is its power to cure cattle of any one of the many distempers to which they are subject. Its application for this purpose is rather peculiar, for the cattle are not touched with it, but driven up and down a stream in which it has been laid. Not only in the immediate neighborhood of Curramore is resort had to this magic stone by the peasants, but requests for its loan are often made from far distant parts of Ireland. The privilege is almost always accorded and has never been abused, the crystal being in every case conscientiously returned to its rightful owner. The names ghost crystals, phantom crystals, specter crystals, shadow crystals, etc., are applied to a form of quartz in which the crystallization was interrupted from time to time, so that in the transparent successive layers there is an occasional opaque layer, often no thicker than the finest possible dusting of a whiter material. Sometimes as many as fifteen or twenty of these successive growths are observable, one over the other. When these crystals are in the natural form, they show beautifully from the sides and ends. Sometimes such crystals are found after they have been rolled in the beds of mountain torrents until they have become entirely opaque. But when the surfaces are polished, the phantom, specter, or ghost appears with wonderful beauty. 
Occasionally the entire crystal has been worn down to a small part of the original prism, in which case it is cut into a ball. The ball may seem to be absolutely pure, but when held in certain lights, little tent-like markings can often be observed. Sometimes only one marking is visible, but there may be as many as twenty. These are occasionally due to a layer of smoky material, and though they add a charm to the ball, they detract from its value. Nevertheless, crystal gazers may find an additional interest when the ghostly or spectral interior exists in a crystal ball. This growth is similar in kind to that seen at times in opaque quartz, forming what is known as cap quartz. Here, the crystallizations can frequently be broken apart so that they fit one over the other in many successive layers. Occasionally, the regular crystalline development will be interrupted, as it were, and in place of the original crystal continuing its growth harmoniously, a larger crystal will form on a smaller one, forming a sort of mushroom, or cap, or stilt quartz, as it is termed. End of chapter 6, part 5